Let's face it, some stories get old. Some stories get old. I don't know if you have that person in your family, or maybe you are that person in your family and no one has told you, but there are some of your stories that get old. There are some stories in some families, they just get repeated from time to time, and it gets old. But out of respect, we sit there and we listen, and we will take it in. And we will be kind, and we will not tell them that their story is old, even though it is. But there are some stories that never get old. You know, I think there are times when uh, Neil Armstrong, I think about this, when he returned from outer space, from walking on the moon, when Neil Armstrong comes back, when people ask him, how many days do you think Neil Armstrong went for the rest of his life when somebody didn't ask him about walking on the moon? I wonder, do you think that ever got old? I can't think that that ever got old to tell people what it was like to walk on the moon. I think about Bible characters. I wonder how many days David might have gone without someone asking about that giant. David really, how big was he? David really, what did he look like? David, will you set the scene so I can see it again in my mind's eye? Will you tell me the sound that it made when it hit his forehead? Tell me about Goliath. Daniel was an old man when he went to that den of lions, but how many days do you suppose he went after coming out with somebody not asking him what that was like? How many were there, Daniel? What was that like when the angel came in? What was it like? What did the lions do? And what was, what was going on? What sounds were you hearing? And what was it like? A story that never gets old. This is completely by coincidence. I did not know that our young people were going to be studying from Matthew chapter 14 this morning. In fact, they were, uh, I believe, in the book of Mark. But Matthew's account tells us a lot about a, life, a day in the life of Peter. And it's a story I just don't think could get old. Here's Neil Armstrong. He walks on the moon. You know, not too many people are going to be able to trump that. And so talk about it all day long. Uh, Daniel, uh, not too many people have been in a den of lions and come out of it. Right? So talk about it all day long. Not too many boys have slayed a giant. So David, talk about it. Talk about it all day long. Peter, not too many have walked on water. Will you tell us about it? Will you tell us the story? And Peter might say, well, there are some parts of this story that I just really don't like to talk about. There are some parts of this story that really don't paint me in some very good light. But I'll tell you the story. I'll tell you about the day. And friends, it's a story that just never gets old. It's a story that you can continue to repeat. And you can talk about all the events of that day leading up to it. And you can talk about what it must have been like for him to step out of a boat and walk on the water. But Peter, will you tell me the story? I'll tell you the story. It started long before that night. It started early the, the previous day, actually. It started with the reception of troubling news. We received news. I was with the Lord, Peter would say, when we received the news that John the Baptist had been martyred. His head had been chopped off, and he was dead. And Peter could talk about the reaction of Jesus, his relative, his friend, and his predecessor. He could talk about what had happened in the events of hearing the news of John the Baptist and his death. 
And Jesus wanting at that moment to go off and depart himself into a solitary place, but was simply unable because a crowd had gathered. And Peter could talk about Jesus healing the multitudes. He could talk about Jesus preaching to the multitudes. And he could talk about, as Waylon discussed with our young people a moment ago, he could talk about looking out and having compassion on the multitudes, healing their sick and desiring them to be fed. Here were people who had left home that day only to hear that Jesus was there, and without giving a thought to packing a lunch, they just left, and they brought their sick, and they ran, and they hurried to where Jesus was. And they didn't have anything to eat. And Jesus had compassion on them. And with five loaves and two fish out of a boy's lunchbox, uh, he fed 5,000 men. He performed a miracle. How big was the miracle? He fed them all until they were all full. And when they were all full, he picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. That's a miracle. Peter could say, yeah, I was there. And I watched it. I saw all of that transpire. And I was there, if you're reading in John's account, in John chapter 6, I was there when the people were ready at that moment by force to take Jesus and make Him a king. And I watched as Jesus made us get in a boat and head for the other side, and He dismissed the multitude, and I watched Him as He walked up on a mountain to be by Himself and to pray. It's quite an eventful day, isn't it? There's a lot of things going on. And Peter, as he's recalling the story, he could tell us all the details about the whole day and all this that was going on. But we got into a boat, Peter would say. If you're reading Mark's account in Mark chapter 6, the Bible says they got to the middle of the sea. John says that they went out three or four miles. They made it out to the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And the Bible doesn't talk about a storm on this occasion. It talks about wind. It doesn't say anything about thunder. It doesn't say anything about lightning. It doesn't say anything about big clouds. It just says wind. Well, West Texans, we know something about wind. But what a windstorm this must have been. A windstorm that came across the sea and caused these big billowing waves to the point that they could not row. They were struggling in the boat to row any further. But I want you to remember what time of day it is that Jesus comes walking on the water out to the sea, out to their boat. The Bible tells us that it was in the fourth watch of the night. Now it is early the day before that Jesus has received news of John the Baptist, and it's the previous day that he has fed 5,000, and he has dismissed the crowd and gone up into a solitary place by himself with which to pray. But it is between 3 and 6 a.m. the next day, that they're in the boat in the middle of a windstorm with boisterous waves crashing in around them. Have you been up between 3 and 6 lately? Many of you have. What's the sun doing about that time? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing is what it's doing. It's dark as it can be. And so here they are in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. It is dark. There are waves all around them. The the wind is going crazy. And they look out and they see a, a figure walking on the water. Peter, tell me the story. Tell me what that was like. Explain it to me. No one has seen this before, right? Nobody has been walking across the water. And Peter is there and he sees him. 
Well, you can imagine what their feeling was. Of course they think it's a ghost. Why wouldn't they? They don't have a clue what's going on. And they suppose that it is. It's got to be a ghost walking across the water. They're terrified. Grown men terrified in a boat. What a comfort those words must have been. Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. The comforting words of Jesus when He speaks to them and they begin to understand that it is not a ghost, but it is the Lord. That He is there and He is in their presence. And so something then, when I'm thinking of Peter, I just can't believe these words would come out of someone's mouth. Can you? Lord, if it is you, better translated, Lord, since it is you, command me to come to you. Really? That's what's going to come out of your mouth? What's wrong with this guy, I'm thinking? Lord, since it's you, command me. He didn't say, Lord, I would like to come out there. Lord, uh, I have a request. Would you allow me to come out there? Literally, Lord, force me to come out there. Command me to come out there. I want to be where you are. Now, I, I don't pretend to know all of the motives behind Peter's question. I, I don't know all the motives. I don't know everything that he's thinking But I know that he said, Lord, force me out of this boat to where you are. I want to be there. Command me to come to you. One word response. What is it? Come. Come. An imperative. A command. Jesus grants the request. You want a command? I'll give it to you. Come on. Let's go. Get out of the boat. And the Bible says, and Peter could tell you if he were standing here telling the story, he would tell you that he walked on water. He got out of the boat and he walked toward Jesus. Now, this is a familiar story to many of you. It's a story, though, that I just, I don't think it can get old. I, I want to hear it. And I want to hear it repeatedly. And there are a jillion little lessons that you can come up with in your mind of what you can get out of this account. It's found in your New Testament three times, not by accident. But tonight I want you to think about just a couple of things with me. As we dive into this story, pun not intended, but as we get into this story, I want us to think about what we find in it. I want you to think about what we find in it in this particular story, because you're going to find that after Peter gets out there a little ways, he doesn't make it all the way to Jesus, does he? And before he gets to Jesus, the Bible will tell us that he begins to sink. And Jesus, this is the part that Peter, if I were him, I might want to leave out just a little few details here. But he begins to sink, right? And we find that Jesus asks him, why are you doubting? You of little faith, why are you doubting? But Jesus gets him. And they get back into the boat, and the wind all stops. A couple of observations in the time that we have remaining tonight. And I won't take a long time, but I want us to think about some serious things. I want you to think about the moment that Peter began to go down. 
was a moment where he found himself in very familiar territory. I want you to think about where he was when he began to sink, and he was in the presence of Jesus, and he has done all the right things. Lord, command me, force me out of this boat. I want to be where you are. But when he started going down, he was in familiar territory. I know this, and you know this. From verses like Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, which tell us of a day when Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he looked over and he saw James and John, and he saw Peter and Andrew, and they were fishermen. They were casting their nets into the sea, and he commanded them to leave those nets, to leave those things, and to come with him. Where was he? He was at the Sea of Galilee. What sea is he on in Matthew chapter 14? Huh, happens to be the Sea of Galilee. You think he was unfamiliar with that territory? Absolutely not. He was a fisherman by trade. He'd been all over that sea, no doubt. Was he scared of water? Clearly not. The Bible tells us of a time when in John chapter 21 and verse 7, after the Lord's resurrection, that Peter jumped out of the boat, having put on his outer garment, and he swam to the shore. That's where Jesus was. He's not scared of water, and he knows the sea. But he began to sink in familiar waters. Adam, what's your point? My point is that many Christians will sink in familiar waters. I want you to think about that. Many Christians, especially on my mind are new Christians, are going to sink in familiar waters. I go back to those words of Paul in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And remember there, he beautifully connects the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with baptism, with, new, with Christians being made, obeying the gospel. And as Jesus died and was buried and, and rose again, uh, so we do in the waters of baptism, putting that old man of sin to death and, and rising up to walk in newness of life. But there in Romans chapter 6 and verse 6, Paul says that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves of sin. I'm fascinated by that thought. The thought that Paul gives there of that old man of sin. He would repeat that thought several times. Another time, maybe over in Colossians 2, where he talks there about baptism being a circumcision. The circumcision that God does, where He cuts off that old man of sin. And then you get into chapter 3 in the book of Colossians, and verse number 1, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. And you remember later on in that same context in Colossians 3, that Paul will talk about putting off certain things, putting off adultery and fornication and idolatry and, and, and all this wickedness, and then he would turn around and say, but put on other things. Sometimes you're tempted to resurrect the old man, aren't you? Sometimes we're tempted to put him back on. Sometimes we're tempted to go back into a previous lifestyle. You've known many who have become Christians, who when the going got tough, they went back, didn't they? They went back into familiar territory. They came out of that, and they be, obeyed the gospel, and they became Christians, but when they suffered for it, and their relationships were broken, it just seemed easier to them to go back 
My family hates me in this condition. I'm going to go back. My friends are all there. I'm going to go back. And the temptation is that Satan will throw out there for us to return to familiar territory. Now, why else would Jesus talk about that in Matthew chapter 13 with the parable of the soils? Those who sprang up in the rocky soil. Those who sprang up in the thorny soil. And eventually they would get scorched out or they would get choked out and they would return to familiar territory. I just think it's interesting that Peter here, as he begins to sink, is doing so in familiar waters. It's exactly what he would warn against. The same man, exactly what he would warn against in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Is that not right? When he would talk about those who had escaped the pollutions of the world through knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but again would be entangled in those things and they would return. He said it happened to them, as the proverb says, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow to her wallowing in the mire. You know what Peter says there? It would have been better for them never to have known the truth than to have known it and turned away. It would have been better for them never to have known it than to have known it and turned away. Well, that's, that doesn't sound real positive. I'm just reminding us that we need to make being with Christ familiar territory. That's where our familiar territory needs to be. You see, I'm, I'm giving up all of that. Uh, that is not who I'm going to be. I am going to be right with the Lord. I'm going to be where He is. And that is where I'm going to remain. Many are going to sink, unfortunately, in familiar waters. Secondly, with Peter, Peter began to sink even after loyal discipleship. And so, again, I think about new Christians, baby Christians, being tempted to return to a former lifestyle or to return to uh, the way that things were before they obeyed the gospel. They just have trouble taking root, and if we're not careful, we'll sink in familiar territory. But now I'm speaking more to those who are mature in the faith. You think about Peter. Is this the only time Peter sank? Is this the only occasion that he's going to struggle? And who are we dealing with? We are dealing with the great Apostle Peter. We are dealing with a man that history says would suffer martyrdom for the cause of Christ. He would write pages in our New Testament. He would stand on the day that the church was born and he would usher people into it. He would give them direction. This is the great Apostle Peter. He struggled, didn't he? He really, really struggled at various times in his life. Why do you bring this up? We're talking about a man who after this event is going to be present on the Mount of Transfiguration. He is going to be present in in Caesarea Philippi not long from this event and he will make that great confession to Jesus that you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. He will be the first to run into that empty tomb. He will do many, many great things. But he began to sink, even as a faithful disciple. Adam, why do you bring up this point? It's not so difficult, is it? 
If Satan will go after Peter that hard, do you think he wants you? He'll come. He'll come. And some will sink, even after being loyal to the Lord for a number of years. Brethren, we need to be faithful. At times, his faith weakened. In, for, first, in Matthew chapter 14, in verse 31, Jesus says, O you of little faith, why do you doubt? You've just witnessed me feeding 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. What's the matter with you? What's going on? Why do you doubt, O you of little faith? Brethren, when the storms of life come upon us, when nothing seems to be going right, even the most faithful Christians will have their faith tested and sometimes find it to be weak. Three times, Paul says, Lord, please, please remove this thorn in the flesh. Please take this away from me. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. You're going to be humbled. You're going to be reminded that you need me. You're not going to get too big for yourself. You're going to be reminded how much you need me. And so Paul says, thank you. When I am weak, then am I strong. Let us not be so conceited as to think that we're above temptation. Let us not be so puffed up in ourselves to think that we can get through this life without the Lord. Peter, for a moment, took his eyes off And that is our final point tonight. He got distracted, didn't he? When he was distracted, that is the moment that Satan swooped in for the final blow, as it were, and said, I will take you out. I want you to think about this point. Because we make it. And it's an easy point to make. It's a great one to grasp and to get a hold of. But I want you to see that some will, will sink in familiar territory. And others will sink even after years of loyal and faithful following of Jesus. What happens? It's distraction. Now, if you're marking your Bible, I want you to underline or think about that word doubt that you see there in Matthew 14 and verse 31. Because it's an interesting word. And the word doubt literally means to look in both directions. To look in both directions. You know how many automobile accidents have occurred over the years with people trying to look in two directions? They're trying to look at the radio and the road. Or they're trying to look for something on the floor and the road. They're trying, they get distracted, right? And they're trying to look in two directions. Now I'm not saying I altogether can't understand what Peter is doing having tried to put myself in his position, I could see exactly how something like this would take place, right? I see you, Lord. I'm out here walking on water. I've never seen this done before, right? Other than you doing it. But I've never seen this done before. I've never talked to anybody who's done this before. I'm out here and I'm walking on these, these waves where the boisterous wind is coming down and crashing out around me. And I see all of these waves around me. And you... And the waves. And you. And the waves. And what he did was look the wrong way. You say, really? Did he look the wrong way? I don't see any issue. I see myself wanting to do the same thing in that position. 
The waves and Jesus. The waves and Jesus. And you know what Jesus says? Stop looking at the waves. You just look at me. Stop looking at the waves. Stop being affected by the wind. You just look at me. And I will see you through. I'll take care of it. You asked me to command you to get out here. And here you are. And once you've put that much confidence in me, you start to doubt. Why would you start to doubt now? I'll see you through. I'll get you out of this. How careful we need to be of trying to look two ways. You see example after example of people in the Bible trying to do it. Eve did it, didn't she, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, where the Bible tells us that she looked down at that piece of fruit that Satan had offered her, and she saw that it was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was desirable to make her wise. And what direction is she looking? At herself. She's looking at herself. You can't look two ways. And, and you begin to think about Lot's wife. This is an easy one, isn't it? She obviously looked the wrong way. Clearly, this is a, a prime example of somebody looking the wrong way. Uh, why? What was wrong with it? Was there anything wrong it, generally with looking back? Generally, no. Not looking back is, is that wrong. But it was for her. Why? Because God said not to. Because He said not to. And she paid the price. David, David got distracted. Beauty distracted him. And he got carried in away with the lust of the flesh. And he was trying to look two ways. And it simply didn't work out. And so, again, this is easy solution. This is easy to say. But put this into practice, brethren. These are deep things that we need to be considering tonight. Jesus says, nobody is fit who will put their hands to the plow and turn around and go back or look back. You're, get out of that familiar territory. You're in Christ. Go! You stay loyal. You look unto Jesus. He's the author and finisher of your faith. You look unto Jesus. Many are going to sink in familiar territory. Some are going to sink even after years of loyal service to the Lord. Because they get distracted, you see. Because you're trying to look two directions. You're trying to make more than one thing your God. And it's simply not going to work. It didn't work with Peter, and it's not going to work with any of us. But I'll tell you how the story ends, and you know how the story ends, and you can't talk about the story without Peter wrapping it up. And he says, let me tell you how the story ends. I am sinking. And I look to Jesus, and I say, Lord, save me. Now, do you suppose he whispered that? You're sinking in water. Of course you're not whispering that. You're crying out, Lord, save me. And the emphasis here is quickly. Lord, save me now. I can't have you wait. I need you now. Pay attention to this last point and I'll sit down. I know you know this, but please let me say it. You know where he didn't look? 
And I want you to think about who is behind him. Andrew. Andrew's on that boat. His brother in the flesh is on that boat. But he doesn't turn to Andrew. His fellow disciples, some of his best friends, are on that boat. But he doesn't turn to them either, does he? He turns to the only one who has any ability to save him. There are too many in this world who are turning to family and friends instead of to Jesus. Watch yourself. Who is your faith in? Who really has the ability to save you? It's not your family and it's not your friends. It's the Christ. Turn to Him, won't you? Let Him hold out His hand and grab a hold of you and save you. Now this is the one who was in that position and he was sinking and he was going to die and he cried out, Lord, save me and do it now. Of irony, I find the words of Peter. Irony of great joy. With great satisfaction, we find the words of Peter in Acts chapter 4. After a man has been healed, the Bible says, Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts 4 and verse 8, he said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means has he been made well? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Physically, Jesus is the one responsible for taking care of this man. Physically, Jesus was the one responsible for pulling Peter out of the water and getting him into the boat. But there's more to it than that. Physically, that's what he did. But Peter takes it a step further, doesn't he? In verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other... For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. More than physical salvation, it is Jesus who provides salvation for your soul. It is Jesus who provides you salvation for your soul. And so tonight, come. Come. That's what Jesus says. Are you ready to submit to Him in all things? Command me to come to you. Command me to come to you. That's exactly, my friend, what Jesus does. He commands you to come to Him. Will you? His commands must be obeyed in order for His salvation to be yours. Be of good cheer. It is I, he says. You don't need to be afraid. I have taken care of everything you need to be saved. But tonight, you must come. Will you, in faith, repentance, and baptism, will you respond to his invitation? Will you come? 
Tonight as a Christian, will you respond if you need to? Will you make your life right? Will you do whatever you need to do to be right with the Lord? There is no reason for you to sink. There is every reason for you to be saved. Come. All together we stand to sing.